Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Every now and then I get excited um, about a new publication or a new way in, a new way to study some of these texts. I've been teaching Torah for 22 years, so... And the texts don't change. So it's, you know, it's always fun to have a new way in. And, um, but rarely do I get that experience with the book of Leviticus. Because most scholars just don't choose to go there. Right? The, this is not the book they choose if they're going to focus on a biblical work. This is not the material they choose. So I, was, so I remember I brought you one book that was... Um, about uh, Leviticus, and we we read from it, and I was so excited uh, to to have that one. So so we have a new one, um, which I'm very excited about. So this is um, from part of the Wisdom Commentary series, uh, and Rabbi Tamar Kamienkowski, who is at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Um, she wrote a book called Leviticus. <laughs> Uh, so, Dr. Kamienkowski studies uh, Bible. Obviously, she has a PhD in Bible. Um, but she's very interested in the whole idea of holiness. That, if you think about it, we often just say that word and kind of think we know what we mean. But we don't really know what we mean, right? Like, if you really try to define holiness, what, what is it? Right? It's really hard to define. And, of course, we know that we have the P source, right? We all understand that Leviticus is from the P source, right? The priestly source. And um, so it's mostly P, but you'll recall we talked about there's material in here that's not exactly P. That there's another author whose material is here, another school of thought. So what are our documentary sources again? Right? The Yaoist, the Elohist, right? This is the early material. The priestly source, this is Leviticus. Right? And then we have the Deuteronomist. Okay. Well, in Leviticus, in the priestly material, there's several divisions. Um... There's P, and then P subdivides, but to, early, to, to different possibly periods of P. But remember we talked about within P, there's also H. What is H? Do we remember? <laughs> Cecile's going. <laughs> did I miss... Did I miss, did I miss the notes? Did I, did I miss a test? <laughs> The holiness code. Of course. (laughs) So the school of thought that deals with the holiness code is a a little different from P. Okay? So remember we talked about the early prophets. The early prophets are responsible, possibly, for the writing of the holiness material within P. Why? Why? Because they're putting pressure on P 
to move away from just behavior in terms of ritual being enough to make Israel an Am Kadosh, a holy people. That other kinds of behaviors matter. Things like what? Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. What else? Do not steal. Huh? Honoring your parents, not stealing. Like actually behaving in certain ways is indicative of holiness. Those early prophets, that teaching starts to put pressure on P. Because what's P concerned with? P in general is not concerned with holiness. What's P concerned with? Ritual. Ritual. Okay, but what, what, what are the categories P is worried about? Not holiness. What? Korban. Purity and impurity. P's concern is, is tame tahor, pure, impure, and not having those things cross. And when anything is tame, it must be made tahor, including people. When we are tame, we go through a process to become tahor. Right? When we are, I wish Kayla were here, when we're special, <laughs> we need a way to go back to being regular. Because regular is, regular is the way it's supposed to be. Every now and then, we are dysregulated. That's fine. But we want to go back to being right. So P is very concerned with purity and impurity. So then we see the holiness material. So when we start seeing language about holiness, we know we're dealing with H. $50 to your favorite charity, David. All right. So, so this whole purity system is P, right? So we're dealing with P. So Dr. Kamienkowski, this, you know, her expertise is kind of picking apart some, some of this language, which we're going to look at because I don't, I know it's not exactly the most fascinating material in the universe, but I'm always very fascinated when you're going to tell me something new about some of this terminology, right? Because it's how many years old? Um, so anyone who has some new insights into that is very exciting. So I'm going to share some of that with you today. All right, so let's look at the text. This is all familiar to you, and I'm going to start this before seven people say it. I'm going to start this by saying, yes. We are what we eat. <laughs> yes, that's the interpretation. Yes, that's related to all of these lists. Yes, yes, and yes. It's about you are what you eat. Yes. Are we clear? Okay. All right. <laughs> Eleven. <laughs> the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, <clears throat> saying to them, speak to the Israelite people thus. These are the creatures that you may eat from among all the land animals. Any animal that has true hooves with clefts through the hooves and that chews the cud, such you may eat. The following, however, of those that either chew the cud or have true hooves, you shall not eat. The camel, although it chews the cud, it has no true hooves. It is impure for you. The demon, although it chews the cud, it has no true hooves, it is impure to you. The hare, Although it chews the cud, it has no true hooves. It is impure for you. And the swine, although it has true hooves, with the hoofs cleft through, it does not chew the cud. It is impure for you. 
You shall not eat of the fl- of their flesh or touch their carcasses. They are impure for you. Okay. So we're dealing with meat here. Dealing with land animals, right? Mm-hmm. How much how much of what percentage of their diet in the ancient Near East in Israel would have been meat? Very small. Not much. Not much. Less than 20%. What was most of their diet? Grains. Grains, for sure. Because what are all of our major festivals? What are our major harvest festivals? They are all related to grain. Grain was a staple. It still is. Think pita, lafa, right? This is the staple. Grain, what else? Vegetables. Vegetables. Fruits. Vegetable. Fruit. Grain. Fruit. What else? Big category in Israel. Chicken. Chicken? Beans. That's a bird. That's animal protein. Animal protein would have been less than 20%. Grains, fruits, and? Fish. Fish. What do pastoral animals produce? Milk. Milk. Dairy. Oh, seriously, you people who go to Israel didn't get that? It's a creepy sauce. What are you going to put on everything? A yogurt sauce. You eat yogurt in the morning, and you put your vegetables in it, right? Like, so, right? You dairy, cheese, yogurt, right? All the, goat cheese, right? If you're raising goats and sheep, you have lots of dairy. Not cows, right? This is not cow milk. It's not cow country. Really. It's not cow country. So, oh. what is a daman? <laughs> Sorry. Um, does someone have a different translation? It says, is the men- a member of the hierarchy. Oh, it's a deer. Oh, well, it's a brown, gray mammal. Rabbit size. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah.
this subsistence technology, right? Preparing grains so that they are digestible and preparing dairy into the things that are yummier than just drinking (laughs) goat milk, right? Okay, so we know this stuff. You don't have to be an expert in this stuff. Who are the technicians in the meat system, the sacrificial system? The men. The men. So that makes some sense. If meat is your special, special, special protein, your special food, and you want to communicate very clearly patriarchy, who do you give that technology to? The men. So it's another level of the priests all being men and the priests dealing with sacrifice, right? Was there any any word on who controlled the fire production? Was that ever? Well, women would have been tending the hearth. Women would have been tending the fire that makes for all of the food that you ate at home. Um, So Lynn, what was that look? Well, that look is if there are so many meat creatures that can't be eaten and there's no cows there or not a lot of cows are bull the men If the categories of meat are so limited and they're not doing 80% of the food preparation, what exactly are they doing? They're drinking coffee, they're welcoming guests that the women will cook for. So, but, but, I mean, on the one hand, we laugh, but think of the text about Avraham. Avraham is sitting at Petacha Ohel, he's sitting at the opening of the tent. Welcoming. Welcoming guests, right? And what does he say to Sarah when he sees three strangers approaching? Quick, go get the good flour and make special cakes and make and kill or whatever and swim and 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 80% of the, the, the work in terms of, of providing once things get to the home. So, so you have, but you have other physical labor, right? You have planting, you have sowing, you have reaping, you have harvesting, you have, like, there's, a, there's other work um, that would have been done that required people outside the home doing that work, right? Yes. It seems to me, though, that, and I I know you're going to think this is very terribly sexist. Okay. You let the men kill the animals. So, so so say more. Handling babies and children are not going to be so interested in killing animals. So, possibly, are you saying that it's sparing women that experience? Maybe. Maybe it's sparing women the experience of having to actually murder stuff to eat it. Yeah. Right? Dealing with the blood and dealing with the slaying and dealing with the carcasses. That Maybe that's not, women are not going to be so interested in that. It sounds sexist as much as it sounds orthodox to me. Women are spared, so... So they don't sit with us. So to Judith's point, 
sparing them from that and excluding them from the most lifted up experience is paternalistic. It, it, it's a very fine line. He's a price. So it's because wh- why don't why don't women get called to Torah in in orthodoxy? No, because they are not commanded. And you will take the aliyah from a man who is. <clears throat> There's no reason women are not called to Torah. It's that they are not obligated. Once you excuse them, why are they not obligated? Because any, any mitzvah related to time, women are exempt from. Why? They're taking care of the home. They have to take care of the home. They have to take care of eight children. They have to take care of the, their sick in-laws. If you made them have to be at services three times a day at a certain time, you would interfere with the mitzvot that women are most suited to. And so that line between you're excused, you're exempt because you have really, and and I'm not being sarcastic, you have really important things to do. We depend on you raising the children and keeping kashrut and keeping the home and keeping everybody safe and happy and fed and clothed and bathed. That's really important work. So we're excusing you from the yeshiva. We're excusing you from davening. We're excusing you from aliyah to Torah, talit. We're, exclu- you, we're, we're excusing you, and it's a very fine line between excusing and excluding. But right. you get no choice in it. You are excused. You are excused. That is the halacha. That is the law. And once you're exempt... If everything is really truly equal, that might be fine. But just like we see here, what's lifted up in the culture? How learned you are. Yeah. Oh, well, if I'm excused from the yeshiva, how am I be- going to become learned? I'm not. Yeah, unless I'm yentl, right? Like I, I'm, I'm not going to achieve, I'm not going to have any access to the technologies that result in the most respect and the most prestige in the culture. That is a very tricky line. And if you talk to Orthodox feminists, they will tell you they don't want to daven. And if they daven, they daven at home. They're like, what do I need a minion for? If I need to say Kaddish, I'll find a minion. But otherwise, I'll daven at home. What do I need all that shuckling whatever for, right? Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like they, <laughs> Orthodox feminists will tell you, it's good I'm excused. You're right. I don't want to slaughter animals. Thank you very much. I'm not interested. I, I have babies that I want to be with, right? You know, and, and so, so, but it's a, it's a very fine line. And, like, and a lot of it has to do with, I think, what Judith put her finger on, a lot of it has to do with, am I, do I choose to be excluded? Like, okay, good, because I have things I need to do. Or is it you're not allowed in here because you are excused? Right, and it's the not allowed part, right? That and 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 it's funny because it's not just y'all. You ask anybody why women are not don't do this, don't do that, don't do this in the tradition, and you'll get some crazy answers about. And and I would have had them too about why they're not allowed. There's nowhere it says they're not allowed. Oh, they're just not commanded. They're not, not obligated. Not 
they are excused, right? And so, that, but, but ask anybody, and they'll come up with all kinds of reasons why it's not allowed. Now, I'm not, I'm not denying that there isn't a serious within orthodoxy reaction to calling women to Torah. Even they, even they're like, you don't do that, right? And if you look for any kind of textual proof in the halacha, the only thing you come up with, because I did it in rabbinical school, mm-hmm. the only thing you can come up with is it's not done out of respect for the tzibul, for the, it's for modesty for the tzibul, for the community. Modesty. That is the only text you can find that deals with women not being allowed, is it kind of goes against the modesty of the tzibul, of the community. But it's kind of like, Saying women can't wear pants because it's men's clothing, but if if jeans are now considered unisex, how is it men's clothing? Who defines what men's clothing is, right? So the modesty of the tzibul of the congregation. But if the congregation doesn't find it immodest that a woman is on the bima, your argument falls apart. But there's not a lot of room for arguing that. I mean, it's tradition, and you do it because it's tradition. I, I don't hear, I have a, a stepson who's orthodox. And the answer I get is because that's the way it is. Okay, but I'm, but I'm talking about people who want to argue. Yeah, oh yeah. People who want to argue about it, even if you dig, there's nothing other than the modesty of the tzibul. Amy, does that explain the limit of the wall? Is that the, well, part it's of the reason for the this? Opposition to the opposition to women praying at the wall? No. That is about men and women not praying in the same space. Men and women don't... They're divided. That's the point. You have to have a a division. You have to have a mechitza. And the mechitza should be high enough that they can't see each other so that the women shouldn't distract the men from their prayers. Is that custom or halacha? It's halacha, I think. That you can't daven where there's not a mechitza. And what about not allowing conservative or reformed men to pray at the wall? They're not women, but they're also kind of excluded. Huh? No. No. Any, man. Uh-uh. Any man can go to the men's section. But I, Sheldon, you had your hand up a while ago. Oh, uh, I was going to, when we were talking about the role of men and women, it all, it all I think, comes from the time when civilization were hunter and gatherers. The men were doing all the killing, all the protecting. And this is just a transition from that period where the women are now in the home and the men are doing the sacrificing. So it's not as if this division so unusual. Created, created at this time. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And it's the same thing in hunter-gatherer societies, often. What is celebrated? The hunt. Who are the victors? The ones who kill, right? So it's the same thing we're talking about that like the technology that's only 20% because that's the same in the hunter-gatherer. Women gather 80% of the diet and hunting is 20% so of the protein, right? So, so again, but what's lifted up and celebrated is the, the stuff that the men have control over. And it's still that work. Of course, but but that's what's celebrated. That's what's lifted up rather than I know where that stuff grows. I know where that herb grows. It's going to cure you who got gored because you got in the way of the stupid animal, you idiot. Right? I'm the one who knows where those plants grow and when they grow and how to treat. So, but is that lifted up and so? No. Right? So it's, it's no different. 
in that sense. I want to say, what you have here, and it probably is not unique to Judaism, is you've got culture and religion inter, interrelating excuse me, with each other. So it's hard to pull apart what is actually culture slash tradition and what is actual religion. I'm going to argue there's not a separation. But, right, I say. They, they, that, that there isn't a way to separate those. You, right, you can't separate religion from the culture that right. produces it. You can't, the the religion is. is the spiritual expression of, of a, a people. Right. Of a culture, right, right, and so I'm saying they're, they're interrelated, is what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is no difference, okay. right? Ha, ha, you, you can't, you can't separate rich, the rituals here <laughs> from, <laughs> from, right, from the culture that that produces them and relates to them, right? Um, That's all right. Anthropology 101. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I have the a degree. Thing about all these animals is. All of these things are things you can see. Okay. So you don't need to know the name of the animal. So let, let's look at the ones that are forbidden. forbidden. Look at the ones that are forbidden. What does it say about... How many are there? There's four. Mm-hmm. What does it say about three of them? They have... Right? What do they have and what do they not have? They don't have true hooves. Although it chews its cud, it has no true hooves. Three of them, three of the four that are forbidden, chew their cud, but don't have true hooves. And only one. Only one chews the cud and has no true hooves. So why couldn't you just say... It has to have true hooves. It's kind of weird that if you'd eliminate, if you make it have to chew the cut, you, you can rule it so that three of them are gone. So it seems that the emphasis on this fourth one, although it chews the cut and has no hooves. Yeah, no, the fourth one has hooves. It doesn't, has hooves and doesn't chew the cut. Right. No. The fourth one is swine. Right. Right. So that seems to be a special category, right? It has true hooves, but doesn't chew the cud. <clears throat> so part of the question is why the swine, you know, being kind of the only one in this category that's forbidden. Because bacon is so good. <laughs> because bacon is so good, right? <clears throat> so Dr. K. Minkowski goes to an interesting she cites some interesting research that all of the other ones and all of the animals that the Israelites would have been raising give birth to one or two at a time except pigs pigs give birth to a litter and I did not know this pigs can get pregnant while they're pregnant yeah. So they, they, there can be multiple fathers of the same litter. Same with dogs. Oh, dogs no, dogs. Sexual harassment. They can be exterminated by If the pig's at Estrus, how do you know she doesn't like it? So, right, so, so when a pig is, is ovulating, it can have, it can be impregnated. It can be impregnated by several males. Dogs can be too. That, that, there you go. 
Who knew? The, the things you learn at Torah study. Let people know. Um, so, so what, what, tell, tell me about that. Okay, why, why do you think, why do you think Kay Minkowski is going to cite that research? What, is, what does that mean? It means that if you allow the pigs to do that, you may get mixed up and allow humans. Aha. Uh-huh. So there might be something taboo about just how fertile the pig is. And taking many partners and having babies with many partners that possibly there's something like mm, 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 mm. that's stepping a little too far over the even for animals like appropriate behavior. <laughs> right? So if we are what we eat, and we've had that conversation here many times, you're not going to eat a bird of prey because it tears things apart, it eats garbage, it eats dead stuff. You don't want to eat that. (laughs) Robert's looking confused. So perhaps you don't want to eat if we are what we eat and we're putting some metaphorical attributes to the things we don't eat. Possibly one of the things we don't want to eat is a sexually promiscuous animal. (laughs) That's not where you were going, Robert? (laughs) Bert's like, and I'm president of this play. (laughs) One of those examples of of the other, of of something that that, that seems odd, because we've got the same situation with respect to things that live the ocean that also can can crawl up on the land. That's that's not possible. Right. Those are... That, that's not normal. It's, the, it's, it's one of these other not so good. <laughs> right. So we talked about we've talked in here before when we looked at Kashrut. We talked about creation is separation and categorizing, and that's how everything stays stable. Because when we have Noah, what happens? Those those separating things unseparate and then what happens <laughs> I'm sorry could you define this <laughs> right so so that's like and then it's like all right chaos again and that's how everything's destroyed so I see you David so everything is pulled apart and separated and as long as everything stays separated we're good so so line crossers are not good Right, so we talked about that made the rabbis very nervous, and and it seems even early Israel it made them nervous because they're the ones whose creation story we're talking about um, made them nervous. So if it can, so that there's if it's a line crosser, a boundary crosser, off limits. Okay, I'm gonna close us today with a whole new insight into animals and why some of them might have been kosher and why some of them might not have been. David? Is there commentary? I mean, when I looked at the animals that are excluded, there, there's the commonality, of course, is they either uh, chew their cud or they don't have true hooves. Is, is there commentary as to why? What's, what's distinct about that feature that separates these animals saying these cannot be eaten? So, because they were scarce or because they So were... with all of Kashrut, there is always an attempt to ask why. In general, <coughs> the answer is because it says so. <laughs> My kid says that. 
right? It says so. God doesn't want you to eat it, so you don't eat it. There's, there's not a lot of energy spent on why. But people who really want to go there, go there. So why? Why not? The, so some say, well, because what if you see an animal and you've never seen it before and you don't know if it's kosher or unkosher? Well, if you pick traits that you can see, then you know it's got a split hoof and it chews its cud. It's kosher. I can eat it. Okay, that's a possible why. But a lot of these animals, I learned from Dr. Kamenkowski, a lot of these animals were not things that <laughs> Israelites would have had access to. Anyway. Anyway. So if you don't eat them, you put them on the list of things we don't eat. <laughs> right? But the pig was widely produced, widely what do you call it? Cultivated? Husbanded? Um, Wife. In the, raised. <laughs> raised. Raised in the ancient Near East and was eaten by Canaanites for sure, for sure, for sure. So, so a lot of these things are on this list Israelites would not have had access to easily. And, but the pig for sure was very prominent in the diet of Canaan. And this is where along with how fertile the pig is, this is where some of the research suggests that the pig might have been a symbol of fertility. And if you're celebrating fertility, then who are you worshiping? Likely, it ain't Yudhei-Bubhei, right? It's Asherah, you know, whoever your fertility goddess is. And so possibly you roast a pig right to offer back right to the fertility goddess what she gave you the symbol of it and you eat it and that makes sense so if you don't want those Israelites who are now Yahwists to backslide you're going to say you can't eat pig at all so that you make sure they're not at that barbecue one of the interesting things about the Anusim or the crypto Jews in New Mexico, too, is once they got up there, they would often have pet pigs to let people think these can't be Jews. Mm-hmm. Right. There's an interesting comment in this book. It says, only twice in the Torah are we commanded not to eat pork. Yet every Jew knows that it is forbidden. The Torah commands us many more times to refrain from gossip and hurtful speech. <laughs> Yet many observant Jews do not sense they're violating the Torah when they speak ill of others. So these are actually the easy, the easy mitzvot to follow. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> you mentioned a lot about the pig and the promiscuity and whatever, but you've got three other classes of animals um, that don't do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, nobody wants to eat a camel, uh, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there are a whole lot more camels in the Mideast than there were pigs, I would imagine. Not early. Not early. No. Nope. Camels but, late. Where did camels come from originally? Where was their... I don't know. Mm-hmm. But they're late. In Asia. Well, in, in Egypt, the camel meat was only for poor people. Mm-hmm. There you go. It's like eating tire rubber, right? Like they've been—they're road weary. Like, what you, all right. The thing is, the Muslims don't eat pigs. I wonder if it's the same that they don't—they want their women to be 
Only for them and not have other... Right, but remember, right, so we, we don't know that that's the origin mm-hmm. of any of it. They right. probably took it from Judaism. Mm-hmm. Just we don't know what, what the ori- what the origins of are in Judaism. Even this is just I'm just giving you interesting fun facts that you might not have known. And you didn't mention that one of the arguments about kashrut is that it was meant to keep people separate from. So well, that was the thing about that's the pig later. festival, yeah. right? But also, right. So you, how do you identify and continue to make sure that you are? Yeah. Right. That you identify and identify over and against. It's and it's it's universal. Mm-hmm. What we eat is what, in part, defines us over and against other people. Right. Like you know, you, you go to other ethnic cuisine, and right. there's some scary they, stuff that they, they serve they you. Uh, right. There's some scary stuff, and and our and our <laughs> our reactions are visceral to being served something that is not part of our cultural norm, right? We get like, unless you're Rabbi Nick Renner, you know, who'll eat anything, like we, it's like, right? We have a visceral reaction, right? It is, it is core in some ways to our identity, what we eat and what we don't eat. And I'm not talking vanilla versus chocolate, right? I'm talking about those things that it's like I would never put that in my mouth mm-hmm. but other people right, it's completely normative and it's one of those places anthropologically that, that we see that it's, it's really visceral our reaction to you can see puppy that. farms in Indonesia and they're being raised for food mm. alright let's go to verse 9 because I just can't even go there these you may eat of all that live in water anything in water whether in the seas or in the streams that has fins and scales these you may eat. But anything in the seas or in the streams that has no fins and scales, among all the swarming things of water and among all the other living creatures that are in the water, they are an abomination for you, and an abomination for you they shall remain. You shall not eat of their flesh, and you shall not abominate their carcasses. Everything in water that has no fins <coughs> and scales shall be an abomination for you. Go on. The following you shall abominate among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, and the black vulture, the kite, falcons of every variety, all varieties of raven, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, hawks of every variety, the little owl, the cormorant, and the great owl, the white owl, the pelican, and the bustard, the stork, herons of every variety, the hoopoe, and the bat. All right, so we're getting the introduction of the word shekets. And shekets, does the Green Book translate it the same way as ab- abomination? So it doesn't say abomination. It says not impure. No, no, let's not go there yet. It says abomination in the Green Book? Okay. So shekets, shekets comes from Akkadian, shakatsu, which means detestable. So, so we get shekets here, the introduction of this word shekets, and when we see the word detestable, abomination, particularly abomination, right, we tend to go to, this is the worst of the worst. It is abominable. It is the worst. So what's interesting is, how do we know it's the worst? 
right? We, we, we just kind of assume right? if it's an abomination, right? It's the worst of the worst. There are some scholars who say it is the opposite, that it's not the worst of the worst because it does not communicate impurity. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that if it, if it were really so bad, then even touching it would communicate tum'ah, impurity. But it, Sheketz doesn't, in this case, communicate impurity. So possibly it's saying it's not the same bat, it's not the same dysregulator as other things. Like you touch the carcass of an impure animal and you are impure. Right? But contact with Sheketz doesn't communicate impurity. I had never considered that before. Right? Because in the priestly system, that's what they're most concerned with, right? And this doesn't do that. So maybe, right, it's an indicator that it's not, Different. you know, as, like, awful as you can get, right, in terms of... Is the word for butcher? Isn't that awfully close? Shochet. No, not even close. Um, abomination is a pretty strong word. And it sounds, I mean, if you ask impure and say, and, you know, match the words of doing college boards, um, uh, you know, I would see abomination as impurity as being very close. Which is why I don't love the translation. Because they picked an English word that is loaded. That's why we leave the translation leprosy even though it isn't leprosy, because we want to leave that impression that you get when you read leprosy. So I don't love, based on this research, I don't love, I would say I would argue that abomination is not a great translate, not that it's not a great translation, I think it's overly loaded, a translation. Not, not that detestable is so much better, but... That's what you use. But, but like off limits, you know, like oh. you're to consider it, uh, ooh, we don't eat that. Ew. Right? And I don't know about y'all, and I'm very guilty of this. Like people are always saying to me, don't yuck my yum. <laughs> I'm like, oh, please. Right? So like when people are like, oh, I just love sauerkraut. I'm like, Aah! like I hate, Aah! that is sauerkraut an abomination? No, no but it's ew, gross, right? So I, I like sauerkraut. I knew it. I knew it. This this is my point. When I say ew, I don't eat that. That is nasty, right? Is it really nasty? No. No. Is it an abomination? No. But to me, it's like yuck. I don't eat that. So. I think that's closer so we can eat to Sheketz, right? No. It's like, ooh, we don't eat that. Well, there is a footnote in, in Shukur's Green Book that says uh, the Hebrew is actually Sheketz, parenthesis, disgusting. Right, I it's said detestable from right. the Akkadian. So they've got the footnote that uses the word disgusting. While they translated abomination. Yeah, it's surprising <laughs> that they didn't just say Why didn't they just say disgusting? Yeah. But disgusting right. is different from detestable. I mean, disgusting. But, but it can, there's lots of, you know in the dictionary, it's not just one word that defines the right. word. Right. In Akkadian, right. it's right. ugly, detestable, yucky, gross, we don't do, you know, so yeah. it's that list. So disgusting is is closer to my example of sauerkraut. 
That's disgusting, right, <laughs> right to me. So, well, not sauerkraut, but some other things. So, um, but it's closer, right? Because it's if you don't eat it, it right? It's it's just I'm not. I don't want to belabor the point. I just want to say it's interesting to to have another approach to Sheketz that makes it a little less right about abomination because it doesn't communicate impurity. I I did not know. I did but not know. The command is still clear. Yeah. The Sheketz is the why. The what is don't eat this is clear. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just the why is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, not even why. It's just that it, it continues. You, you won't eat this. You will consider this right. disgusting. Okay. Maybe they already considered it disgusting, and that's why it made this list. The problem right? in translation is always, between any languages, I think of the Yiddish words that cannot be translated in right. English. Right. All right. Go on, Bert. All winged swarming things that walk on force shall be an abomination for you. <clears throat> But these you may eat among all the wicked swarming things that walk on force. All that have above their feet jointed legs to leap with on the ground. Of these you may eat the following. Locusts of every variety, all varieties of bald locusts, crickets of every variety, and all varieties of grasshopper. But all other winged swarming things that have four legs shall be an abomination for you. And the following shall make you unpure. Okay, see? There we go. Now here we're getting a category of those things that will make you tame. Bert? Whoever touches their carcasses shall be impure until evening. And whoever carries the carcasses of any of them shall wash his clothes and be impure until evening. Every animal that has true hoofs but without clefts through, through the hoofs or that does not chew the cud, they are impure for you. Whoever touches them shall be impure. Okay, so the higher category of do not have contact with them are these animals, and as we see later, one that's died. Right. Uh, if it's dead, oh, 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 right? Serious impurity is communicated, right? So we can't eat something that died. You have to slaughter it, right? It has to be shechted, or you can't eat it. All right. Um, so, so going to somebody raised it earlier. Going to the idea that this list limits how much meat you can eat. That you can't eat just anything living, whether it's land animals, sea animals, or things that fly. You don't have complete access to every living thing to kill it and eat it. It seems that is something underpinning this system that yes, you're allowed to kill to eat, but not indiscriminately. That there's a limit put on our appetite for killing and eating. And Yitz Greenberg explains, and I've said this to you before, but I want to put it in this context, that all of Torah is mitigating between what is and what should be. And that what should be is that we do not kill things to eat them. That's what should be, even according to Torah. Because in Eden, they did not kill things. They ate from the trees. So 
Yitz Greenberg, a brilliant scholar, argues that to- all of Torah is a mitigating factor between the world that is and the world that should be. That God understands, because in that system, God wrote this, God understands who God's dealing with, which are imperfect human beings who have created an imperfect world. So Torah, the angels don't need Torah. They don't steal, right? Who needs Torah? Imperfect human beings who have created an imperfect society. We have to start there, says Rabbi Greenberg, right? He says, you, Torah starts there. It's written for those people. It's given to those people, helping to move that society and those people's behavior towards what is ideal. Hmm. And the ideal is vegetarianism. So between you can kill everything you want and eat whatever you want that's alive and you shouldn't kill anything to eat it. What's, what's, you know, what's, the, what's something that will mitigate the circumstance of what is towards what should be? Okay, you limit it. You put really strict limits on that appetite. So is Rabbi Greenberg saying that the Torah is a compromise? God's compromise? It is In God's vehicle... Having faced reality after <laughs> certain incidents that we won't talk about, um, it's God understanding reality and saying, okay, so what do they need? They need, right, what's going to move them from what is to what I, God, think should be? It's a road. And it's this. So it has compassion. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tool, it's a set of tools to help move us right to towards what should be all right so i want to take some time to look at it always gets so late so fast how does that happen every time i'm like this time it's not going to (laughs) happen this time i'm going to get there sooner (laughs) right 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 although i probably managed to slow myself down too All right, so this is actually from Rabbi Kim, uh, from Dr. Kim Yankowski's book, but I found her source. So I made it for you from her source, from neochassid.org. And I found it fascinating. What is that design on on the cover? Women holding hands and... Dancing in a circle. Oh. <laughs> All right, you have it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah? Does it start almost every religion? Okay, good. Every religion arises. Almost every religion arises in and is shaped by a place, to Bert's point, and teaches its adherents how to live in that place. All right, so now already what are we doing? David Seidenberg is already going to Kashrut and its practices originating out of a certain place. What is that place? Israel, right? Ancient Near East times, yes? In an ecosystem where humans depended on hunted game taken from large herds of wild animals, Sheldon, such as buffalo on the North American plains, the prohibition found in Leviticus against eating blood would be almost impossible to follow. But in the ecosystem of biblical Israel, where wild herds and habitats are less productive, a hunting culture is unsustainable. 
We don't hunt meat. You're not allowed to sh- you're not allowed to shoot an arrow at something and then eat it. You have to slaughter it. You have to shecht it. Right? Well, that would make no sense on the American plane, is what he's arguing, right? He's arguing all of these laws arise out of a very certain place, and that you can't hunt in ancient Israel because there's nothing to hunt, (laughs) right? I mean, that wouldn't sustain you. You have to raise your animals. Okay. Instead, a culture where humans can carefully control the size of domesticated herds (laughs) to fit both the limits of the ecosystem and the needs of the population is what is called for, right? So you, you, you control how many animals are in the environment and, and how many can be sustained by your ecosystem. That was the ecosystem that shaped the religion and rules of the Bible. This brings us to those puzzling categorical rules that determine which animals are permitted for eating. Mammals that chew their cud and have split hooves are kosher. All other land animals are not. What do these two characteristics of hoof and mouth mean? Anthropologically, historically, theologically, and personally, there may be, and there are, many interpretations. Some of them can be found in Mary Douglas's celebrated work, Purity and Danger, which we've talked a lot about in here. Purity and impurity being related to life and death, right? Danger. Which a lot of that comes from Mary Douglas, right? But ecologically, there is a specific meaning which goes far beyond any hygienic or moral or other rationalistic or symbolic interpretation. The depth of this meaning is not in generalities, but in the details. It makes me so excited. That meaning, practically speaking, is straightforward. Any animal that chews its cud can eat grasses and plants that are inedible to human beings. Any animal that has split hooves can walk and therefore graze on land that is too rocky to cultivate with a plow. Who knew? In the extreme, mountain goats can be seen grazing small shrubs growing out of crevices in the sides of dams. These characteristics together mean one clear thing. The only land animals that can be eaten according to the laws of kashrut are animals that do not compete with human beings for food. These rules, precisely tuned to the agriculture of hilly Canaan, would, in their original context of the ancient Mideast, have allowed a civilization to thrive without destroying the ecosystem it depended on. In that ecosystem, which was in some ways marginal, that is, which depended on intensive human input, agriculture and herding, as well as on intensive divine input, meaning rain, right, because those were related in ancient Israel, there was no room for devoting good farming land to livestock. Embedded in this wisdom about locale is another truth. Any culture that allows domesticated herds to compete with humans for food also pits farmers against herders. And that's still alive. Right? Because if I'm raising food for people, but you need it to feed your cows, we're now competing. You know, the cows are going to eat the stuff that I'm trying to raise to feed people. Right? Okay, you got it? 
More important, it pits the poor who have no land against owners who control both land and herds. We can easily see the dynamics of this problem in the modern world where rising world food prices endanger the poor in many countries. Those prices are driven in part by the industrial practice of feeding grain to cattle instead of giving them their natural diet of diverse grasses and other pasture plants because there's not enough pasture for our consumption of cow. They may also be driven more recently by the use of grain to make ethanol fuel. And what the cows produce, too, is so damaging right. to the environment. Instead of competition between herders and farmers, we have competition between feeding our SUVs and cattle and feeding other human beings. In order to create a just society, which may be the most important value within Torah, there needs to be a way for farming and animal husbandry to produce enough for all people, poor and rich. The way to achieve this value in different ecosystems may differ, but any culture founded on justice will always find a way to bring this value into alignment with its ecosystem. Seems so basic. It's a beautiful, for me, interpretation that I have never considered before, that these categories of chewing the cud and split hoof is about making sure that the animals that the Israelites could eat were ones that could be sustained by the Canaanite terrain so that they were not in competition with human beings because that causes all of these other um, not only problems of creating poverty and creating tension you know, between um, herders and farmers um, but also damages the environment right and that that there was a wi- there's a wisdom to this stuff that that and remember we tend to look back and say oh well they thought if you ate that you would become the-. we we tend to look back on it and patronize a lot of these practices and for me what Seidenberg does is he says you know there's a wisdom here that we have forgotten far beyond there is a wisdom here that we not only have forgotten but willfully ignore because we choose to feed our SUVs instead of other people who don't have access right to food and whenever I talk at the bar about mitzvahs about the fruit that we don't have flowers instead we have fruit decorating the bima right I, I always say you know it goes to the west side food bank to feed the food insecure in our community who can't afford this kind of food the most basic natural healthful, right? What's so normative in the diet in the ancient Near East? Trees, fruit, right? That was 80% of their diet. They can't afford that. What they can afford is stuff that's about as nutritious as the box that it comes in. Right? Right? How pathetic is that? The people can't afford the most because it's too expensive. Fresh produce is expensive because we have pitted Right? Production of that against so many other things that now that the price of that food is out of reach for many, many, many families who are food insecure. Um, and I think Seidenberg, for me anyway, brought, really brings an exciting interpretation of Kashrut in that if you want a society based in justice, then some of the most basic rules have to be around what you eat and what you don't eat based 
in large part on what it does to the ecosystem and what it does to everybody else living in that ecosystem. That to me is a very powerful interpretation of kashrut. Yes. And then leads, and you all, I always close, when we get to this section, I always close the class the same way. What if we took those values seriously? I don't care about this list so much. I mean, I do in some ways as a positive you know, identification with the Jewish people, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Okay. Having said that, what if we forget the list? What if we took Seidenberg's interpretation seriously? What would be off limits? Cows, for sure. For sure. But we can't sustain the amount of cow we eat. I mean, we can, maybe, but then we're going to be living in a you know, dead zone, right? So I, I just... Again, I, I feel like there's a wisdom here. There is a deep understanding of justice and creating a certain amount of equity and access to what, what, what we eat and, and what we grow and what we don't grow and what we don't allow in terms of destruction of the ecosystem. And, and then what, what, would, you know, what, would we, what would we say is off limits, right? Th th no, you can't eat that. It causes incredible injustice in terms of you know, people and their access and the poor, who's poor and who's rich. And it's destructive of the ecosystem, right? Just think of the list we would have of what would be off limits. It's not kosher. It's not okay. If you want to be a holy people, you can't, you can't support this industry. You can't because it, by definition, right? It's creating all of these social inequities. It's causing so much suffering. It's causing the destruction of the environment. That list would be a long list, and it would include many of the things that we eat daily, if not weekly, right? And, and, I'm, and I'm one of them, right? I love a good steak. I mean, I'm one of them. And I just feel like as a Jewish community, as a Reconstructionist community, I wish we were having a few more of these conversations about... What does it really mean to be a holy people? This stuff doesn't go away just because it's old. The values he's lifting up are critical now more than ever. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.